Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. We are back. Today we're going to finish our two-part focus on White Christmas, and we're going to dig into the film today. Ooh, that's exciting. So, so actually, let's start by just hearing a little bit of your impressions of the movie. I don't know if you want to start with that. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so, let me just start this show off with a blanket apology to all people who love the character of Betty Haynes. She drives me bonkers. <laughs> Not Rosemary Clooney. Rosemary Clooney is a lovely woman, and she only said the words that the writer wrote down for her. Not my friend Charlotte, who is a lovely woman who played this character. The written Betty Haynes drives me crazy. <laughs> she drives me crazy. And I've got I've got a few little, if we get to that, I, I, I watched the film a couple nights ago, and I made notes oh. of specifically oh, wow. incidences where she drove me zonkers. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Betty, get ready. Betty, get ready. It's it's a perfectly delightful film up until the housekeeper overhears. Oh. And that false conflict comes in to play. Because any time that you can have a conversation and it would cure the conflict, mm-hmm. it's not a real conflict. There you go. That's it. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Well, now I'm looking forward to hearing <laughs> you rip into Betty. So okay. Again, not Rosemary, not Charla, <laughs> the written Betty Haynes. Okay. Okay, good. All right. Got something to look forward to. Yes. Jumping back in, we, we spent a lot of time last time talking about the lead-in, right? The creation of the song, how the song elevated through, to popularity through the troops. It's premiering in the movie Holiday Inn. And now we're ready to talk about White Christmas, the film, the musical itself. And so I'm not sure if our listeners are aware of this, but many articles refer to it as one of the all-time great musicals, one of the most popular, of course, we all know this, Mm -hmm. holiday movies of all time. Mm -hmm. But at the time it came out, it was the highest grossing film of 1954. It earned $12 million. Wow. It was the biggest hit of director Michael Curtis's career. The co-stars being Crosby and Danny Kaye were ranked at that time number one and number three box office stars in the country. Wow. They had great chemistry in the film. Oh, they did. And the song White Christmas at that time, the movie came out, was already the most successful song in American history. Right. That probably helped it a whole lot. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And so what it said in one of the articles was that, of course, we know Irving Berlin had written that song way before Mm -hmm. and Bing Crosby had performed it on the radio on Christmas Day of 1941. All of those things had happened, the hit movie, etc. But it was a no brainer, of course, for Hollywood to capitalize on that. So as early as 1949, which is five years before the movie is actually released, oh, yeah. yeah, the movie White Christmas was already in preparation at well, yeah. Paramount. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as we've already said, their idea was 
to just kind of showcase Irving Berlin tunes and reunite the stars of Holiday Inn, Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire, recycle the parts of the earlier film that had worked, but mix in some new stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, they were even going to kind of steal some elements from an unproduced musical that Irving Berlin had written before with Norman Krasner called Stars on My Shoulders. Mm. And they were going to turn this this story into the screenplay. But everything almost fell apart because they had this project envisioned as a trilogy. They were going to have like these buddy musicals starring Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. Did Fred retire? Mm. Oh, Fred, you (laughs) broke up the band. That's right. So they'd already teamed up for Holiday Inn in 1942. They had done Blue Skies in 1946. So White Christmas was supposed to be their third buddy picture. It was supposed to be this big reunion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But as you just said, Fred Astaire turned the project down. What, Fred? What are you thinking? Well, supposedly it was, they're not sure if it was just lack of interest or just concern that he might be getting a little too old to do such a big film like that. Yeah, yeah. But another source said that Fred Astaire didn't like the script. So I'm not sure. Well, maybe me and Fred will be the only two on this. (laughs) Maybe he's like Betty. He didn't like Betty. Because as you're saying this, like, it's the biggest hit in the world. I'm like, well, I can be one person against a thousand, I guess. (laughs) So what happened was when Fred Astaire backed out, Paramount replaced him with Donald Connor. Yeah, that's who I think would be adorable in this because of Singing in the Rain. Exactly. He had just come out of that. But then he had to pull out because he got sick too close to the production start date. So that's when they turned to Danny Kaye. And according to this author named David Leopold, I guess is how you would say it, Danny Kaye asked for this huge paycheck, $200,000 plus 10% of the gross, thinking that they would turn him down. And they gave it to him? They gave it to him. Good for you, Danny Kay. Yeah. So he was in, right? And Wait, wait. You said 10% of the gross? Mm-hmm. Man, you could retire off of that. Right? But then they almost lost Bing Crosby, no. too. Oh, no. Because in January of 1953, when Fred Astaire decided to back out of the project, Crosby was thinking maybe he didn't want to do the film. Oh. He was going to take time off to be with his son following the death of Bing Crosby's wife, actress Dixie Lee. But then sometime later that same month, he decided he would stick it out and they went ahead and moved forward for like Christmas. Once it started, Irving Berlin felt great about it. He wrote a letter to his friend Irving Hoffman and here's a quote. It is the first movie that I've been connected with since Holiday Inn that has the feel of a Broadway musical. Usually there's little enthusiasm once you get over the first week of a picture, but the change in this setup has resulted in an excitement that I am sure will be reflected in the finished job. In any event, as of today, I feel great and very much like an opening in Philadelphia with a show. Wow. I bet a lot of that has to do with Danny Kaye because he was just full Full of energy, full of energy. He really drove the, the, he steamrolled through that. Yeah, I I saw several things in different sources about how much fun he was, Mm -hmm. always joking, his Mm -hmm. energy. I mean, I think everybody loved him. Yeah. Well, in case you've never seen White Christmas, the movie, which I find hard to believe anybody's (laughs) never seen it. Right? (laughs) But here's the IMBD summary. Having left the Army following World War II, Bob Wallace and Phil Davis team up to become a top song and dance act. Davis plays matchmaker and introduces Wallace to a pair of beautiful sisters, Betty and Judy, who also have a song and dance act. When Betty and Judy travel to a Vermont lodge to perform a Christmas show, Wallace and Davis follow, 
only to find their former commander, General Waverly, as the lodge owner. A series of romantic mix-ups ensue as the performers try to help the general. Those are not (laughs) mix-ups. Well, to support what you've been saying, there there were several people who said they felt the plot was a little thin. You think? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so again, to fill in a, a little bit of the gaps, because the general's about to go out of business because there's no snow, mm-hmm. the four performers decide they have to put on a show to save the inn, and guess what happens? <laughs> it's a success! <laughs> yes. Ah! <laughs> and they get to sing a lot of beautiful Irving Berlin songs. Yeah. An interesting little tidbit is that Paramount chose White Christmas to be its very first movie produced in Vista Vision. I do. I have that in my note. Oh, yes. cool. Opening thing, Paramount presents first picture in Vista Vision. Which was a big deal at the yeah. time. It was their widescreen answer to CinemaScope, apparently. Mm-hmm. And it was such a big deal that the New York Times talked about the technical achievement in its review, saying, The colors on the big screen are rich and luminous. The images are clear and sharp, and rapid movements are got without blurring. Mm, so, yeah. I mean, they... Mm-hmm. They it's went a big on deal. about this thing. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would just share a few little interesting tidbits, trivia, if you will, about mm-hmm. the film. I'm, I'm going to guess that you probably know some of this, Ashley. So if you want to jump in with anything, you feel okay, free. Okay, sure. First little tidbit. Sisters wasn't originally part of the script. Now, I didn't know that. I knew that the reprise was not a part of the, the film. Okay, actually, that's what I meant. Oh. So I just didn't express it well. So okay. tell me what you know about that. Um, well, I think that they were goofing off between sets and they were lip syncing it or something and the director thought it was the most hilarious thing. So he just added it into the script. 100%. It said that Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye were goofing around. And as you said, the director was watching it, loved it. Here's the part that I thought was cute. It said, in an effort to liven the performance up and to kind of, you know, get to Bing, Danny Kaye improvised that moment when he begins to slap. You can um, see Bing actually yes. start laughing. Yes. Yes. It's genuine laughter. It, literally. It said it caught him off guard and he could not stop laughing. And it's then, very then it, cute. It, it cracked up Danny Kaye a little bit too. And they thought that that was the best take. Like they yeah. wanted to use it. Yeah. So it ended up in there. Another little tidbit. The song Snow was written years before White Christmas. It was originally entitled Free, and it had nothing to do with winter at all. In fact, going back to that idea we talked about mm-hmm. before, Rosemary, was in his trunk? Yep, Rosemary <laughs> Clooney said it was one of his trunk songs ah. and that he had set it aside and then he pulled it out of his trunk and he rewrote it and used it I for wonder if he purpose. had an, a literal trunk or if that was I just know. what he called it. I wonder that as well. Hmm. And then... There's another little part in the movie where the Haynes sisters tell Bob and Phil that their brother is working out of the country in Alaska. Alfalfa. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That picture. Exactly. Well, why don't you finish the sentence so people know what we mean? Well, okay. Earlier in the movie, when they are in a scene in the overseas during the war, there's a picture or it's a reference to the dog face boy, mm-hmm. right? It's when they're changing clothes. Yeah, they talk about the dog face boy. How could he have sisters this good looking? But then they show the picture of him and it's the, I don't remember the actor's name, but he played Alfalfa in The Little yes. Rascals. The point I was going to make here is they refer to being out of the country in Alaska. And that's oh, yeah, because yeah. the film was released in 1954. Alaska was not part of the yes. U.S. at that time. Yes. It, it was It was just a territory. So You were out of the country. It wasn't until 1959 that Alaska was a state. So think 
about that. That's amazing. Yeah. So another interesting tidbit is that they had to change some lyrics for Bing Crosby. Irving Berlin had the song, of course, we, we know it. Gee, I wish I was back in the army. And it said something about seeing Crosby, Hope, and Jolson all for free mm. because they were big wartime entertainers. But then when Bing Crosby got cast in the movie, well, that would have broken the fourth wall to right, have referenced right. him. It turned into the lyrics we all recognize now, which was Jolson, Hope, and Benny all for free. That's cute. Yeah. Here's another one. I've got all kinds of interesting little tidbits from these sources. After the final shot had wrapped, the actors were told that they needed to redo the finale because the king and queen of Greece were visiting the set and the producer wanted to give them something to remember. So they had to reshoot the entire scene just for the king and queen, but they didn't have Bing Crosby because he had left to go play golf. <laughs> and they also didn't even bother to put film in the camera. Wow. Yeah. Oh, here's here's a cute thing too. One source said that when Bing left to go play golf, he told Rosemary to cover for him. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, how big a star are you that you can just, you know, I'm not going to appear for the yeah. king and queen of, what'd you say, Greece? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to go play golf instead. Yeah. yeah. And they let him do it. Crazy. Just another little tidbit. This will be our last little piece of trivia, and then we're going to take a look at some of the casts. But Irving Berlin was nervous about how the film would be received. It's said that he wasn't always on the soundstage, but he would show up every day at the cast recording sessions for the soundtrack, and he would pace so much around the studio that finally they said that Bing Crosby went over to him and said, there's nothing we can do to hurt this song. It's already a hit, you know, like <laughs> chill out, bro. Calm down. <laughs> Calm down. Okay. So do you want me to do any of my little trivia? For uh, my yes. Notes? This okay. Would be a great time to do that. Okay. Well, I won't, I won't go into the character assassination quite yet. I'll just do <laughs> the trivia stuff. So did you notice that at the, Oh, I don't know if you watched the film, but the credits are actually at the top of the show. Oh. It's back when they used to do their credits before the film. You I know, did now not we do their that. we do the credits later. And one of the credits was for Edith Head. Have you ever heard of Edith Head? I have not. Well, she'd be a really cool episode because she was a very famous costume designer. Hmm. But I think later on in her life, she was almost kind of like the lady, well, the entity that wrote the Nancy Drew stories. She was a real person, but then other people would do the work and it would just mm -hmm. have her name on it. Oh. So she was very prolific because it wasn't always her doing it. Maybe you're wrong, but that's what I think. I, think I remember. Oh, this may be something to do in show notes. We can post this. Do you remember a long time ago, they used to have a cartoon that had Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra playing chickens and they would, they would sing to the, they would have singing contests. I, I don't do know. I do not remember Okay. This. I may have to, I may have to post this, but I can, I have a memory of this cartoon where they played these crooner chickens and they were trying to get the chickens to lay eggs and who could get <laughs> which one of them. <laughs> and I'm almost positive they had a Bing one and they had a Frank Sinatra one and they oh were singing what the girls were just swooning and they were like blah, 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 laying all the eggs. <laughs> oh, oh. Also, Bing added the spice to his line. So if you hear, it's kind of like jive talking. He said, a slam bang finish or uh, this hunk of dynamite. He would add that stuff. Mm -hmm. So he was just doing that. That was mentioned that Rosemary even commented on it, how much he would ad lib. Yes. And because it was Bing Crosby. They let him do like, it. They let him do it. Well, he didn't even have to perform for the king and queen of Greece. So we That's know right. where, where he is, ranks and stuff. Higher than the king and queen of Greece. <laughs> Uh, Vera Ellen's trademark was her high collars. Mm -hmm. Did you know that Betty sang both parts of Sisters? I read that. I did yeah. not know that until I saw it mm -hmm. while I was doing Vera research. Ellen just lip syncs it. Mm -hmm. Oh, this was kind of cute. Sisters plays in the background while Judy reads Betty's letter, where she says she's taking a gig somewhere mm -hmm. else, and they, it's just something they're playing in the background. But I thought that was really cute. 
That is cute. It's always those little touches that kind of mm-hmm. make That's it That's the last one I wrote. The rest is, is uh, about the people. All right. So just to kind of move through some of the cast members and, and hit on a few other tidbits that we haven't already talked about. Of course, Bing Crosby, one of the biggest stars, huge, revered. We've already covered him so much mm-hmm. that there's not a lot more to add. Just the fact that he basically was the center of the film. And, and as we've already said, they would either build some of the dialogue around the way he talked or just let him ad lib and put in his own phrases. In fact, Rosemary he had a lot Cl- of power. He did. Yeah. Yeah. Rose- Rosemary Clooney said that the that little monologue when they meet in the lounge and they're having sandwiches and yeah. buttermilk was pretty much all improvised by wow. Bing Crosby on the spot. Wow. Yeah. He just, just and it sounded it. very conversational mm-hmm. because it was he was just being himself. <laughs> I didn't know this, but somewhere I ran across this little piece of trivia that being Crosby's granddaughter happens to be Denise Crosby, who appeared in Star Trek: The Next Generation back in the late '80s. Mm. And just a little crossover here: Rosemary Clooney's son Miguel Ferrer also acted in Star Trek III: The Search for Spock. So we have a little Star Trek a connection space, between space their, connection. Interesting you know, descendants, and of course we all know. Moving on to Rosemary Clooney, beautiful singer, obviously, but could not dance. That was one of the big (laughs) things. She would talk about it openly in the interviews. She was very forthright about that. And so if you watch the film, you will see she usually does very little movement, very Uh, little dance. Yes. Only two real moments were in Sisters and in the minstrel show medley. And they said both times they kept her choreography incredibly simple or gave her props to try to make it. Oh, is that why they had those cutouts maybe oh i think so yeah wow she must have been terrible then yeah she really was not excited about dancing at all (laughs) i mean but did you notice how much they had vera ellen dance i think she danced more than anybody else had a featured moment like bing had a few solos of course rosemary had a few solos but i didn't keep count but it felt like we were constantly seeing her dance more than we saw the other ones heard the other ones sing and i didn't know this until i was preparing for this episode but apparently it's been because she was considered to be one of the best dancers in Hollywood at that time. Like she was known for this. And I think in the same way that you would have thought of Fred Astaire, like you're going to let him Uh dance. Uh You're going to let Vera Ellen dance. Okay. Yeah, it was a big deal. So I thought it was interesting though, the two sisters, one can't dance and the other one can't sing. And they pair them up and just, you know, just make work. this work. But yeah, she played, Vera Ellen played Judy Haynes while we, as we've already said many times, Rosemary Clooney was the one who played Betty. And as you said, Rosemary sings for Vera Ellen. The only time we actually hear Vera's voice is when they are disembarking the train in Vermont and they sing the opening lines of Snow. Oh. It's actually Vera Ellen who says Snow. Oh, that must be why mm-hmm. when when that happened, I looked at Brian, I was like, oh, that sounded weird. That sounded off. So yeah. it must be why she must have tried to sing it. I thought it was Danny Kaye, though. I thought, that's odd. I thought Danny Kaye could sing. It just hit my ear wrong. Yeah, you, you knew something was off, but something you couldn't was quite off. tell yep. what it was. For the other songs, it was mainly a lady named Trudy Stevens who did not get credited. They dubbed that. her in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest trivia I guess we haven't mentioned is Clooney is her her famous nephew well, yeah. is George Clooney. Yeah. Just in case anybody didn't go. know. I, I don't know if he says aunt or aunt, but he calls her Aunt Rosie. Oh, yeah. not anymore. Well, yeah. <laughs> but he actually <laughs> I can cut nice that. that. <laughs> Okay. All right. Moving on. So as um, <clears throat> all right. So as we've said, Vera 
Ellen was considered to be an amazing dancer. She had started dancing at the age of 10. At 18, she became one of the youngest Radio City Rockettes, and Mm. she performed in several Broadway shows before she headed to Hollywood. In fact, here's a little extra I'll give you. Growing up in Norwood, Ohio, which was a suburb of Cincinnati, she actually carpooled to dancing classes with Doris Day. Oh, I love Doris Day. Now, about the high collars. Yes. A lot of people say that the fact that you never saw her neck was because she had an eating disorder. I would I would mm-hmm. think so. In one of those outfits, it's the one where she's got the red belt or it, it just looks like, oh, that is, that is too cinched. It's too cinched. That is a lot of speculation mm-hmm. says that. However, I did run across... Bill Dennington, who is a longtime friend of Vera's, said in an interview very Mm -hmm. publicly, all of her life she wore something around her neck. A necklace, a choker, a scarf, a collar, etc. It was her trademark. Mm. Like Van Johnson wore red socks. Mm -hmm. I saw her neck many times. It was lovely. Oh, okay. So her friend was saying, no. It's just something she decided to do. This is just her thing. Hmm. Yeah. Now, there were huge age differences. Speaking of these characters we've already introduced, Rosemary Clooney, of course, plays Betty Haynes. Mm -hmm. She's supposed to be the older sister to Judy, played by Vera Ellen. Mm -hmm. But Rosemary was actually seven years younger. Younger, Mm -hmm. okay. When the film came out, Rosemary was 26 Vera Ellen was 33. Now, Bing Crosby was the love interest to Rosemary Clooney's character. He was 51 when the movie debuted. Oh, dear. 25-year age gap. Yeah, but Rosemary was a, I don't mean this in a negative way. It's like some of the people back then did not look their age. They looked older than their age. Rosemary looks mature and in her, I would say like 30, 31, 32, she doesn't look like a 20-year-old. Just maybe it's the style of her hair or the way her makeup is done, but she just looks mature. I agree. And it's just people of that era just kind of seemed ageless, like they Mm -hmm. should be any age. Well, an editorial comment. I think even today we're too caught up in a number anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like what's believable on a film. And here's another example. The fella, Dean Jagger, who played the retired elderly general was actually born a few months after Crosby. I mean, they were that close. Well, now that is one thing I noticed. I thought both of them, Mm -hmm. Bing and Danny, looked too old for their roles. Bing looks about the same age as the general and for the general to call him son and he's smoking his pipe and it's like, you guys look like your contemporaries. Right. And yeah. Danny looked like they were, they should have been about 10 years younger, probably. Yeah, I agree. To make that timeline work out. So Danny Kay was multi-talented. This fellow was known as not just an actor, of course, but as we saw in the movie, he could sing, he could dance, he was known to be a comedian. And when you look at his career, boy, does he cover a broad... Prolific. Oh, goodness, yes. But a few highlights. He was really actually well known for running a radio program. There was a Danny Kay show that ran on CBS in 1945 and 1946, and it made him become very popular. Mm. And then he actually had to kind of leave that radio show because he started touring at the end of World War II on a USO USO tour. And so they had to get some people to fill in for him. So he did a lot with this tour. And when he came back, he got more into the movies, I think at this Mm, point. Okay. The thing that I know him from is my mom used to have a not used to we we have a Christmas albums, you know, the famous Mm -hmm. Christmas albums that would get put out by the stars. One of the songs on there was Jingle Bells. I think it was Jingle Bells, but it was a tongue twister. He would sing like Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell, Jingle all the way. Oh, what fun is riding when I was up and sleigh. And he would say it really 
really fast. As I was doing the research, I did see that his wife, Sylvia Fine, it mentioned that she wrote many of the tongue-twisting ah. songs for which he became famous. So apparently that was like a big thing for him. It must have been. All these tongue-twisters. Those were the main actors in the movie. But just to share a few other interesting appearances, Ashley had already shared with us that the dog-faced boy, Benny mm-hmm. Haynes, who was brother to the two girls, I just found his name. That's actually Carl Switzer. Oh, that's who it. Yes. played Alfalfa in yes. the original Our Gang, or, or we may know it as The Little Rascals. Mm-hmm. There is another interesting cameo by an uncredited dancer. You may recognize at one part in the movie, there's a scene where the sisters, the Haynes sisters, are dancing with this one male dancer. His name is George, I think you would say it, Chakiris maybe. Mm-hmm. And he later wins the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor as Bernardo in West Side Story. <gasps> oh, Mm-hmm. Okay. When you look at it knowing that, you recognize yeah, him. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Bob Fosse was the uncredited choreographer. I thought it looked like Fosse choreography. Right? I did. I, that was really cool choreography. And in case you're not familiar with Bob Fosse, he is the man who later went on to choreograph shows like Chicago, Cabaret, and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. Very distinctive style. And then, you know what? I just see it in my notes, Actually, You had mentioned it already. Edith Head. She was already an Oscar winner by the time she worked on White Christmas. She was the designer. Mm-hmm. Those dresses, those costumes were gorgeous. It's said that throughout her life, she won eight Academy Awards for costume design, mm-hmm. more than any other individual in that category. And she won for classics like The Sting, Sabrina, and Roman Holiday. Right, but I would love eventually one day to do an episode about her because floating around in my head, I think there's the thought that she may have been, in, in some cases, she may have actually designed the costumes, but later on, it may have been more of a group effort and Mm -hmm. Edith got the Oscar just because it was her name on it but I'm not sure I don't want to disparage her unjustly that just would be an interesting thing to look into who is that author there's an author who writes adventure suspense books and now I don't think he even writes them anymore it'll say his name his name with so-and-so. Uh, that's the with that's doing it. Right? I can't think of who it is off the top of my head. Anytime you see a biography and it says with somebody, it means it's being written by the person. Mm-hmm. So awards. The film White Christmas only got nominated for one Academy Award. It was for Best Original Song for Count Your Blessings Instead of Sheep, but it did not win. Really? Yeah. Would have been funny if it had been nominated again for Best Song White Christmas and won, and won again. again. <laughs> yeah, they probably thought that, well, let's, let's share the wealth. Let's yeah. give it to somebody else. This was 1950. 1950- that this movie came out so popular. Do you know the play did not come out until 2000? No kidding. I know. I did not know that. I did not know that either. Hmm. I will tell you all that as I was trying to research the stage production, I could not find a lot. It was really hard to find information well, about the stage production. Having co-directed it just a few years ago, it is similar but different. Mm-hmm. There, Instead of the housekeeper being named Emma, her name is Martha. Okay. But in both instances, and I just I just remember this clocking it, both instances the housekeeper does not show up until about 45 minutes into the plot. Okay. In the stage and the, the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the beginning is fairly similar. I don't remember a whole lot of differences. Oh, Blue Skies is the end of Act 1. It's a great show-stopping number. And, you know, you only hear it in just a little strains of the, mm-hmm. the music early on. It's been two or three years since we've done that. So I don't remember a lot of other differences in it. Uh, oh, I do remember another big difference is Martha is a more developed character. And she has a wonderful trio, Falling Out of Love. Oh. It's really fun fun song that she sings with Betty and Judy. It's one of my favorite songs in the show. 
Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, here's a little that I was able to find. It said that the stage adaptation of the film, which was titled Irving Berlin's White Christmas, did not appear until the year 2000. It premiered in St. Louis at the St. Louis Municipal Opera Theater, to be exact, on July 17, 2000. It was performed other places like San Francisco in 2004, but it did not hit Broadway until 2008. And it was just a limited engagement on Broadway at the Marquee Theater. And it started on November 14, 2008 and ran through January 4, 2009 for 53 performances and 12 previews. It doesn't sound like a lot. It, no, it doesn't. And of course, after that, of course, I'm assuming it's been out to different mm-hmm. theaters such as yours mm-hmm. that, that's performed it. It's a musical in two acts. The music and lyrics are by Irvin Berlin. The book is by David Ives and Wal Blake. And of course, it's based on the Paramount Pictures film that we've been talking about for right. the last however long. <laughs> You've already told us they're not exactly the same. Right. One of the challenges was the fact that the film moved between all of these settings, yeah. including mm-hmm. a, battlefield, a battlefield and a train. So the stage adaptation had to figure out how to deal Mm -hmm. with that Mm -hmm. and then there are a few as you've already said deviations in the plot points too but here is a quote from a principal actor from one of these you know original productions who was talking about the play this person this is just one person's opinion of course the feeling of the movie is absolutely the same but the script is not the same as the movie it's all the same characters but the plot is slightly different They still go to an inn in Vermont Mm -hmm. and put on the show in their barn, but the way the storyline unfolds is different. The songs are all the great Irving Berlin songs from the movie, but some of the production numbers are different. Do you agree? I guess I'm trying to remember, and I thought we did a really amazing job with this show. I thought the dancing was wonderful, but I am trying to remember what is different about it. One thing that I loved in the film and that I or we replicated, I hope, on stage is there is a song, Love in the Weather, that's added. Mm -hmm. And it takes place between the two dressing rooms of Bob and Phil and Betty and Judy and they're singing. But one of the things that happens in the film is one of my favorite scenes in the Mm -hmm. film is where they're getting dressed. And they're, they talk to each other and just the ease and they're handing each other everything. And it just looks like something they've done a thousand times. Mm-hmm. So for our poor actors, I wanted them to replicate that. I wanted them to actually get dressed on stage, which is mm-hmm. something I really like doing if you can. Of course, not down to their underwear or anything, but they would go behind screens if they had to switch their pants or whatnot. But I love, I wanted to replicate that familiarity. Mm-hmm. And so you really saw the relationship between these two characters. And it ends up being one of my favorite scenes in the in the play is just seeing them. It was so fascinating every night because the audience was like, oh, they're really going to do this. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that was a new song. I guess Susan's character was a little bit different. She's younger. She's only about 10 Mm-hmm. In the play where she's a obviously a teenager, she's a little has a little bit more to do. The Susan in the movie is just sort of there to look winsome mm-hmm. and adoringly at her grandfather and this one is a little more spunky and she has a song and Martha's character like I said is more developed and she has a a cool solo she wants to be a Broadway actor herself but I don't really know plot wise besides expanding Martha what could be different yeah so basically very similar just little nuances just little nuances yeah the thing that's not different is they still made Betty nuts We need to hear more about that. I know. So one of the things that I remember from watching the performance you guys did, Mm -hmm. Ashley, because that's the only time I've seen White Christmas performed as... A play. Yeah, as a play, as a stage production. Mm -hmm. I remember the train. 
Oh it was yeah, so fun. that was really the cool. Way the way we bounced recreate. them. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to share briefly, like how you did that? I think this was Kevin's idea, my co-director. I think he had them bounce up and down so that it would look like they were riding a train, mm-hmm. and everybody had to have synchronized movements of mm-hmm. when it would move, and they would move their bodies, and that was just very cool. And the song takes place with all the people on the train, not mm-hmm. just those four characters. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I, I could tell that it took some careful choreography uh-huh. and, and uh-huh. a lot of practice, but it definitely was a great visual effect. Well, as I said, I couldn't find a lot, but one of the things that I found about the play that I loved was an article. It was written by David Ives, who is a famous playwright, and he was also the librettist for the musical White Christmas. I had no idea what that word meant. I had to look it up. He wrote the words, the text for the vocal works. So basically, I guess a lyricist, I guess he had to add more of the words oh. to their songs or to whenever they were doing productions. Oh, okay. But I, I'd never heard that term used before. So anyway, he was in the thick of this. And so he had been watching back in 2004 when they were getting ready to premiere this musical in San Francisco. He was watching the director of that production work with the actors who were playing the male roles, the Bing Crosby and, and Danny and Kay parts. Bob mm-hmm. and Phil, exactly. And I thought what he shared, this insight, was very cool. So this will be just a little bit of reading to you guys, but I think I think you'll enjoy it too. To set it up first, the two actors were struggling. They were doing this scene and they kept rehearsing it and rehearsing it. And he said, these were amazing actors, mm-hmm. but they just weren't getting it right. Like mm-hmm. they weren't capturing the feel of it. Mm-hmm. And so the director stops them and he gives them advice. And so here's, here's what it said. I want to remind you of one thing. This is a pre-neurotic pre-Sondheim musical we're doing. The year is 1954. Bob and Phil are not interested in their feelings or showing their feelings or showing what sensitive men they are. They're men of their time. They don't want to be sensitive. They want to be decent. Mm -hmm. They want to help their old army buddy the same way they'd help each other out of a jam without thinking. Mm -hmm. Forget about Bob and Phil. The scene isn't about them. It's about the general. Now let's try it again. Yeah. Yeah. And this fella who's reflecting says, you could palpably feel a sudden lightening of the mood in the whole room from the two actors and from everyone observing in the cast. It was the lightning that comes from revelation. Then lo and behold, when Brian and Jeffrey, those two actors, launch back into the scene, it was utterly changed. Mm. It was free. It was uncomplicated. It was joyous. Mm -hmm. And never again did a scene get stuck that way because everyone in the room knew that the director had gone to the heart of White Christmas. Mm -hmm. From that moment on, the show began to glow. Yeah, it is about the general. Everything they do is for the general. Uh, Not this particular article, but a different one, talked about the importance of the war. One of Brian's favorite lines, he pointed out, he said, they're looking at the general, and he says, we ate, and then he ate. We Mm -hmm. slept, and then he slept. Mm-hmm. And it's just looking at their friend and this person who had taken care of them and their decision that we're going to do whatever it takes to take care of him now. Yeah, a, a totally different article that I didn't even really reference in this, but it, I just remember reading it was talking about a modern audience that we probably cannot relate as well as people of that generation <laughs> because we don't have a full appreciation mm-hmm. of the suffering and the trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and what... I wonder if modern military people identify with well, this as would, well. Yeah, that's a good point they probably obviously would Mm -hmm. would have a lot more to connect to but but they said the war was just such a part of everybody's 
life and, and having to deal with, you know, the, the after effects and, and all of it. Mm-hmm. And that that was so central to this. And as you said, the relationships and the appreciation and the love and the, the way that they that they were connected to each other. And so I loved the reflection that this man that was put really out here insightful. and what that director said to yeah. those actors. Armchair psychologist. So that observation actually leads us very nicely into my armchair psychologist question for you, Ashley. What do you think makes White Christmas so enduring today, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it's set in a time period so long ago and centers around a war experience that that so few of us really do know much about because it occurred before we were born. Mm. So so why is it so enduring even today? I don't know if I can fully answer it just because like we've talked about and I don't know if you want me to go into it now about why Betty drives me oh, do it. so yes. so crazy. But okay, let's take let's take my feelings out of it firstly. So I would guess for the people who don't think of the Betty problem, maybe it is that nostalgia, the melancholy, this simple Simpler, sweeter, kinder time where you can kind of look back and it's just just a fun show. And the costumes are beautiful. The scenery is beautiful. It's a beautiful film. Mm-hmm. It's a lovely to look at film. It's very iconic. There's all of these beautiful elements to it. It's hard for me to enjoy it because... I can't get past my problem with the character of Betty. Even rewatching it, I loved it up until the point, like I was saying, the housekeeper does that thing where she overhears and mm-hmm. she hangs up the phone and then she relays information to Betty, who has just said the night before to Bob that he is one of the kindest, most decent men that she has ever met. She takes this person that she has developed an opinion of who has proven, and they kind of had a frosty start mm-hmm. where she she seems to have this character flaw where she gets prickly mm-hmm. really quickly and she gets offended very easily and so they have that little thing but they're still scooting closer to each other and they kind of flirt their way through it so they fall in love they have their big kiss and the very next day she hears information that is completely against the character of the person that she is falling in love with and instead of just asking him Mm -hmm. hey i just heard this thing and is this true and him going oh no 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 here's what i plan to do that's literally all it would have taken (laughs) she turns into this frosty ice queen and he tries men of that era usually not trying to generalize Men of that era typically did not talk about feelings, but he attempts things. He goes, hey, what's going on? Let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. What's, you know, not a big deal. If you were upset about the kiss, it's just a little kiss. You know, tell me, tell me what's happening. And she won't do it. She walks away. She will not do it. And anytime that someone is that, she ghosts him. She won't answer him. That's problematic to me. And, <laughs> and to me, I'm like, Bing, take all these little red flags and go f- make yourself a scarf and get out of there because I think you'd be better off without her. And then something else that she does <laughs> is she goes to the carousel club, right? She gets mm-hmm. this new thing. So she she abandons her sister and they, they have a contract with the general, remember? That's He's right. going to pay them anyway. She leaves in the middle of a contract that is not finished and goes to the carousel club. She figures out what's happening. She leaves that place and goes back back to the end. <laughs> so Betty has now broken two contracts. Betty is a bad business person. <laughs> Betty does not know how to control her feelings and she does not know how to resolve conflict. It drives me zonkers. I think Betty just just <laughs> talk to him and figure things out and you don't need that conflict. We have enough conflict with the show just being, are they going to be able to help the general out? It could just be as simple as that and just like a Mickey and Judy, let's put on a show but we had to throw this big monkey wrench in there. The other thing is, Dan Danny Kaye and, and Vera Ellen are all about setting themselves up. And then when they get falsely engaged, Danny Kaye suddenly acts like she's got, I don't know, rabies or something. And he's just like, oh, I don't want to touch you. I don't want to kiss you. Ooh. And then it's like, what is wrong with you all? They just 
they're that. That's that's my problem. That is so. That's funny. a summar summarization of my problem. Okay, I'm gonna say I've always been annoyed by the whole Betty, the you know, the misunderstanding, all of that as well. Although I forgave her very easily, but you've brought up an interesting point. I I feel like it was orchestrated, right? Like the whole point is the audience needed to see how incredibly decent and wonderful Bing Crosby's character we was. We saw that anyway. We did. I agree, but but I believe that that was the idea behind that move on the part of the writers. Yeah. And we just needed, they wanted us to just to see what a wonderful man he was and also to show how much it meant to Betty's character. She values morality and decency. But and, she's not being decent. Well, that's the funny part she's is until, until you said that, it had yeah. never occurred to me how ironic it is yeah. that she's not being decent yeah. herself. Anytime you have a conflict with another person and instead of just talking to them and straightening it out, I've had that, you know, in past where you've had something with a friend and they just won't talk to you. Just mm-hmm. let's talk about it. Let's straighten it out. It, don't be this ghosty ghoster. She's just, she's acting a fool. <laughs> she's just acting like a fool. Well, I love that perspective because I had never really thought about it that way before. I just was annoyed. I just was annoyed mm-hmm. by the whole misunderstanding. It was like, come on. But I saw what I thought was the purpose behind it. And I guess that's what I'll say is I think that that's one of the reasons why I do think it's enduring is because it's about decency and helping yeah. others yeah. and, and, being, and self-sacrifice. Yeah, Bing and Danny have amazing chemistry. And they're the the scene with the general, when, the gen, when they trick him and he comes out mm. and his his face and he gets so emotional. I felt myself getting like that swell of emotion with how much this meant to him that his men still came back and how when he appears on the television, he says, you know, I know it's a lot to ask you, but if you could just come for the general, it's for the general. Mm -hmm. And those men packed up and they showed up Mm -hmm. for their general. Yeah. That's the part that always got me. Yeah. Yeah. And that actor, you know, the general doesn't have a big part in that movie, Mm -mm. but he does such a good job of, of appealing to my emotions. Yes, very and that much. scene with those soldiers, oh my goodness, it gets me every time. Me too. In fact, quick funny story. My husband is not a huge fan of musicals. I mean, some of them, especially if he knows the music and he likes it, he, you know, he'll go for it. But I had convinced him He'd never seen White Christmas, the film, Mm -hmm. and they were doing one of the regional theaters at Derby Dinner Playhouse. They Mm -hmm. were doing several years ago, White Christmas, and I convinced him, you will like this. And I, you know, oh, the the military and and there's wonderful scenes and et cetera. Got him to go. Turns out it was a musical review. It was not (gasps) actually the story. It was not the stage play. And it was nothing but songs. There wasn't, (laughs) I don't know if there was a storyline at all. I'm not sure there were two lines of dialogue. have enjoyed that more because we would have taken the problematic Betty element straight out of it. My poor husband, but suffered through. But when I told him he would like it, I was thinking of exactly what we were just talking Mm -hmm. about, the relationships and Mm -hmm. and that moment at the end. One thing is really cute is when Emma, the housekeeper, kisses him and then she she kisses Danny and then Phil and he says, his idea. And then she kisses uh, Bob and then Bob's like, woo, come here again. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe he should have gone for the housekeeper instead of for (laughs) Betty, who is not good in business ventures. (laughs) Maybe. Well, to wrap things up, I think this is a nice, nice build on that, a nice piggyback. Going back to that same fellow 
Isabella David Ives, who worked with the original production. Mm-hmm. In that same article, he turned from the story, that, ref- that reflective story that he shared with us, and he was talking about if you wanted to produce this play yourself, if you were an actor or a theater group that wanted to put this play on, he had advice to give. Okay. And here is what he said. If I had any advice to give performers, directors, designers launching into this show, it would be this. Outward simplicity and inner generosity. Mm. Outward simplicity means not hammering jokes in the contemporary sitcom smirking slash mugging manner, Mm. but letting laugh lines land as they will with all the modest ease of 1954. The humor has to come from character, not from knowingness. Inner generosity means making your every acting objective about the other person. Mm. Speaking and listening are more important than trying to be funny here because it's humanity that's on offer, not snappy lines. In short, this show can't be played as a musical of today. To work, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it has to remain true both outwardly and inwardly to the era the movie it's based on was written in. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons people want to see White Christmas, because they want to inhabit that more innocent world of 1954 for a couple of hours, a world of uncomplicated friendships and simple open feelings. It's the world of everyone's inner Christmas, where Scrooges are transformed and true love comes wrapped as a gift and snow falls Mm. when it's supposed to. Oh, I love that. Isn't that beautiful? That is beautiful. I thought that'd be a good way to end. I agree. Cheers to all the people involved with White Christmas. Yes. Yeah. And happy Christmas to our listeners. Yes, happy Christmas. Christmas. Happy holidays. Thank you guys for listening to us. Cheers. Cheers. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams, while our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear and you want to help keep the Scandal Water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget, it's always more fun when you share your tea with others. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests advertisers or clearly professional psychologists thanks for listening